This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. It's the Monday after the Oscars. You'll hear in my voice probably that I'm a little tired because it's the morning after the Oscars. Uh, but I'm joined delightfully by Richard Lawson. Hello. It's you know easy breezy 11 a.m. here on the East Coast. So I don't know what you're <laughs> complaining about. <laughs> you went to bed at a sensible hour. You're oh, rested. Oh, no, I, no, I didn't. No, no <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, and joined in my exhaustion, uh, Rebecca Ford. Hello. Um it's the morning after the Oscars. This is uh, one of my most favorite podcasts we get to do all year. There's a ton to talk about. Rebecca was at the Oscars all night. I was at the, our, our party. Richard, you were watching the ceremony at home and wrote your really uh, lovely review of the whole event, as you do every year. But I think that these Oscars are going to be the slap Oscars, kind of no matter what else we talk about or what else anyone talks about, um, which I think is something of a disservice to many people who won. And a really interesting question for the Academy and for history. I'm sure you know, listening to this, that Will Smith uh, walked on stage and slapped Chris Rock in what uh, a moment that a lot of people, I think, thought was a bit at first until we realized it really wasn't. Um, and then he won Best Actor like 15 minutes later. Um I think the conversation about what did happen and should have happened is maybe a little bit beyond us. And I think it's going to keep getting worked out in the days to come. Um, but Rebecca, having been in the room, can you describe the, the feeling of watching something so unbelievably unscripted uh, play out? Well, I think it was a lot like probably it was for viewers at home where you thought it was a bit because why else would Will Smith get out of his seat in the middle of the broadcast? And um, but it wasn't until you heard him yelling that you realized this wasn't a bit because he was swearing, obviously, which you don't do on a, broad, a scripted broadcast. Um, mm -hmm. And everyone just couldn't believe it. It was just a level of sort of shock and confusion. And then everyone I ran into from that point on just wanted to say what just happened <laughs> because <laughs> it's like your brain could not compute that something this insane happened um, on live television while you were sitting there in the room. So, um, yeah, it was it was definitely... And then the energy was different in that room for the rest of the night, by far. Mm. It was like you could really feel that there was like this weird tension that just continued through the end. And, you know, I was up in the balcony. It's not like I was very near them, but I was the front row of the mezzanine so I could like see all the hubbub below that sort of went on for the rest of the night. Yeah, you were watching kind of a series of people walk up to his and um, and Jada's spot and, and talk to them, including Will Smith's publicist and Denzel Washington. And it was kind of a uh, a lot of consoling, right? 
Yeah, I mean, Denzel was definitely the first one over there. And I feel like he's sort of this elder statesman that was like clearly giving Will advice and like pulled him off to the side. And then he went and sat by Jada, even as the show started back up again, because you're supposed to be back in your seat by the time the show starts. Um, But he was still sitting by Jada, like on the ground. And so... And then, you know, the next few breaks, um, Will's publicist was coming over, you know, because r- they're, they're not seated in the room. So she'd like run in for the two minutes and then run back out. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah. And then there were a lot of people that, you know, seemed to be coming over just to like, Bradley Cooper was over there for a minute and Tiffany Haddish. Like a lot of people just seemed to be coming over to talk to them. Um, it was sort of nonstop every time there was a commercial break. I think there was this really interesting contrast that was playing out last night and I think will continue playing out of people near the situation kind of having sympathy and like a a human understanding of what had happened that like, you know, I think even Will Smith would probably agree that slapping someone on the Oscars wasn't the way he wanted to spend his night, even if he might defend what he did, which he sort of did in his speech. Um, But Richard, I think watching at home and maybe even watching it on Twitter, it, it felt different. It felt a little bit less sympathetic, it seems. Yeah, I mean, there were there were certainly opinions flying from all directions, you know, and I I think kind of like you described the, the situation in the room, Rebecca. Like I just was sort of still flabbergasted by it that I didn't really and still haven't really formed a capital O opinion about it. Um, but yeah, I think that look, it's no surprise that on Twitter, in a sort of heated, very public moment, people are rushing to ascribe some bigger higher meaning to it or 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 you know connect it to other broader things uh happening in this country around the world in a way that felt a bit perhaps overdone uh in that this was a very strange and you know unnerving isolated incident um that just happened to be on live television yeah uh when it could easily have happened at a party afterward or you know, in any other context, and has for many celebrities <laughs> throughout <laughs> the history of celebrity. Traditionally, you take it outside. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, you know, Courtney Love throwing a shoe at Madonna and Kurt Loder. Yes, that was also on live TV. But like, uh, you know, back then we didn't have uh, Twitter to immediately turn it into, um, you know, the social or the, a reflection of the social fabric of society as it stands now. Um, mm. So, yeah, it was really that rush to judgment that then as a home viewer, especially one who was spending a lot of time online, you couldn't really get back into the rhythm of the show uh, until you know for the for the rest of its run. Although I would argue, and did in the in the review you mentioned, Katie, that there wasn't much of a rhythm even before the the, the Smith slap. Yeah, and we'll talk more about the winners um, later, I think. But there is a kind of a sense that like whoever won an Oscar after that happened, including Jessica Chastain and even Coda for Best Picture, it's like it almost didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. Questlove maybe being the biggest example because his award yeah. came immediately afterward, and, and he took the stage and, and Will Smith shook his hand and like smiled at him, um, and he gave a lovely speech and he talked about his father. But um, it just was so hard to focus after that moment. I have to say, if anyone offers you the very front seats at the stage at the Oscars ever, I think you should say no to all people out there in the world. Because it almost felt like, because their seats were literally one foot away from that center stage. Every, you know, that wasn't the first joke made at their expense that night. And yeah, it it felt like it was almost like they were at a roast because your eyes just like fall on them because of where they're seated and the way they had that weird um, seating this year where it was just like they were front and center. And I yeah, I do wonder if they just felt like they were always being sort of focused on because of where they were seated. And, you know, when a comedian sees them, it's like, I don't know. I mean, we can never figure out, you know, what was really going through everyone's minds. But I do think they were sort of 
in this weird seating arrangement where it felt like they were all on their own right at the front. Yeah. Well, I feel like we uh, talked about that with, with um, Jane Campion when she talked about the Williams sisters at the Critics' Choice Awards, that the Williamses are so famous and so front center that when you're up on that stage, you can't help but see them and want to talk about them. And um, it, it didn't work out well for Jane Campion. It doesn't seem to have worked well here. Yeah. You know, I think you could probably theorize maybe that perhaps this moment of this outburst, I guess uh, you can call it, um, began with the Regina Hall joke about mm. sort of their open marriage, or at least how they've yeah. spoken about it on Red Table Talk and other places. And, you know, it's complicated because both Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith um, have, with her show and his memoir, been pretty open about their personal lives to some extent. We don't know you know, there's probably a lot they're not sharing with the public, but that creates a really, really blurry, strange line. And clearly, some line was crossed either by Rock alone or just the whole tone of the the evening's jokes pointed at them. And, you know, that's not to excuse it or to even try to explain it. Again, this is just theorizing, but it did present an interesting little image of the tensions between celebrity and the people behind that image. Mm-hmm. Um, we should, we'll jump ahead a little bit to talk about our party, um, which we'll get into more later. But Rebecca, you and I both bore witness to Will Smith's arrival at the Vanity Fair party um, with a huge group uh, of people with him, his children included. Um, they all took a big portrait in our Mark Slager portrait studio, which you can see. Um, and he headed straight for the dance floor with his Oscar, um, where uh, DJ D-Nice was there. And he um, kind of pretty quickly put on a bunch of Will Smith songs, which he sang along to. I've never seen anything quite like it at our party. Um, Rebecca, how did you how did you witness that moment? Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised he came, to be honest. But, you know, it's also for him, his first win. And and I think anyone never knows if it's ever going to, that opportunity is ever going to happen again to them. You know, for a lot of people, it is once in a lifetime. And so, like, of course, he would want to celebrate with his family. But it felt so surreal to see him sort of like surrounded on the dance floor and like pumping his Oscar up in the air. And I was just like, this we're all still talking about what happened a couple hours ago. You know, it's, it was a very, definitely surreal is the word I would use for it. Yeah. And it felt like a very um, defiant in a way. It was like, he was taking the victory lap and like, was not going to step back and, you know, he apologized in his speech, but it felt very like claiming the moment for himself. Um, you know, like you said, Rebecca, like celebrating is something that may happen once in a lifetime. Um, I mean, he was the star in the room, you know, mm-hmm. he was like Lapita Nyong'o came over there to congratulate him. Uh, he went over to talk to DJ D-Nice for a while. Um, it was uh, it was a real show that he came and put on just like singing in the middle of this big group of people. And it was it was fascinating to watch. Definitely. One last thing before we move on to the rest of the show. We've learned this morning that the Academy is investigating the actions of what happened between Will Smith and Chris Rock. They put out a statement that said, The Academy condemns the actions of Mr. Smith at last night's show. We have officially started a formal review around the incident and will explore further action and consequences in accordance with our bylaws, standards of conduct, and California law. So we don't really know what that means yet. It's pretty rare for someone to get kicked out of the Academy and really rare for someone to have their Oscars taken away. Um, so there's a lot of speculation we don't know yet, but uh, we'll be following that as that story unfolds. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. 
Um, well, okay, there was a whole other show <laughs> aside from this. Um, which maybe I'll kick it to you with your review because I think, you know, you texted me halfway through the show about how you were feeling really frustrated by it. Well, I was enjoying the show for the most part, um, and we can get into the details of it, but it seemed like despite their efforts to kind of be like, we're back, we're not in the train station this year, that there, were, there was a grandeur missing from this year's show for you. Yeah, um, I think on the one hand, there were at least maybe it was something with my Hulu live TV broadcast, which was on an annoying lag. So I was getting text messages like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I was like, what happened? What are you talking about? And then I saw the slap happen. Oh, you my know? God. At least you didn't um, miss it. A lot of people were, like looked away. Well, I pretty quickly pulled my sweatshirt over my head and my boyfriend was like <laughs> narrating what was happening to me as I hid under my clothing. Um <laughs> Uh, just as I did when when the La La Land moonlight thing <laughs> happened, I literally got off the couch, walked to the edge of the room, and stood in a corner like Blair Witch <laughs> until a friend urged me back to the couch. Um, but uh, there were technical issues. I thought the audio was really echoey and 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 kind of tinny sounding, and I don't know if that was just because there was a lot of dead non carpeted cushion space between the this really low stage and the you know the the main auditorium seating. But that made it sound like it was in like the Spirit Awards tent rather than in this state of the art, you know, theater built for um, television broadcasting. I thought that the set was kind of ugly and didn't really fit the tone or mood of the Oscars, you know, that sort of grandeur. And I thought the pacing, like I said, was really choppy and some of the cuts were odd and the camera work was strange and there were you could see camera shadows passing over presenters faces at certain times and uh, that was kind of frustrating and I, I know that putting on a live show like this while you're doing when you have all these COVID restrictions is impossible I would have no idea how to do it so um, you know kudos for them to pulling off a mostly um, smooth enough show but I thought beyond the technical stuff there was an air of breeziness and hurriedness that doesn't really help these awards feel special you know and and i maybe that is just how the academy awards that their their profile is going to have to shrink some it's not going to feel like this you know watched by a billion people and here's this life defining moment for all of this talent uh, maybe it will just kind of be more on the level with other award shows, which are just a couple hours, three hours long, and you enjoy yourself and then kind of move on with your night or move on with your week. And to me, as a longtime Oscar fan, that felt like a disappointment. And I just felt like they were trying to make something maybe younger and sexier and flashier in a way that I don't know that the Oscars should be those things, frankly. So I thought that the the awards uh, were sort of swallowed up by these efforts to turn it into some the Oscars into something that I don't, I don't know. They've never been and, and, and maybe can't be. And what, sometimes I wonder if we do a disservice by having you recap the Oscars from 20 years ago, right before watching this year's, because I think the tone has changed so much, you know, like the big sweeping orchestra, I think rightly or wrongly is seen as being kind of a relic of that period. But you watch that, like that sense of occasion. And then this year's like more quote unquote modern version is always going to feel tenny compared to that. Yeah. But they kept saying, you know, it's Hollywood's biggest night, and it's like it feels like Hollywood's MTV Movie Awards. It, mm-hmm. You know, it, it it just didn't something about it, and I I don't I don't want to put that on Will Packer, the producer of it, or anybody. I, I to me, I think this is more the meddling of of ABC, the the broadcast network. You know, just trying to urge this show into a cool direction, complete with fan voting and all that stuff. That just it 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 diminishes. I think what you know at root has always been sort of frivolous but at least had the uh, an effective pretense of of importance 
Um, and I guess if this is the direction that the network or the academy in, in cooperation with the network want to take, okay, I just think that unless there's huge crazy things that like like what happened last night, I, I don't know what what impact a, a broadcast like this is going to have for people. Rebecca, how did it feel that like on on all that in the room? I think I went into this show knowing that like this was not being designed for the people in the room and and that definitely was the case. Like I'm I'm so curious how the the Beyonce performance played for people at home because in the room it was like, you know, it was the opening of the show and it was you were watching it on a screen. It was like watching a Beyonce music video on the screen, which is very enjoyable to watch, but does not create any sort of energy for the room, you know? So it kind of started on this sort of cooler note. And then a lot of the newer things didn't work, like when they revealed the fan favorite, which was just like basically listing the top five, which I I don't know. I thought a presenter was going to at least announce it or something. So it'd be more of a reveal. Um, like the audience didn't even clap. Like, I don't think anyone really understood what was happening then. And yeah, I think it just felt overall very um, almost subdued because you could tell they were trying so hard to make it something it something else, as, as hmm. Richard was saying. So, you know, obviously when winners won, that that was exciting in the room. But but the rest of it just felt very... I don't know, disjointed and and odd for for people sitting in the room. Like, did the Beyonce performance work well on on air? I thought so. Yeah, yeah. I thought when when that started, I was like, oh, okay, this feels big and significant, mm. and um, you know, it was beautifully staged, and I thought there was a nice, you know, in an odd way, a nod to like the sort of more purposeful outdoor living people have been doing the last couple of years. That yeah. it was a big outdoor performance <laughs> and. Uh, obviously, it had a, a really huge thematic tie with the the, the movie that the song is from, and um, that was great. And then the minute we went into the Dolby, and that audio was echoing, and the stage was so low, I, I just it's that from a sort of maison sainte like kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, why would you do that? The point is that we're supposed to have sh- reaction shots from the audience looking up in uh, in wonderment as these people get their trophies, and instead they were just sort of standing at floor level almost in, in the middle of a room it just felt and there was that huge huge expanse of empty stage behind them and everything was just in this little circle yeah. um then it felt more of, as a home viewer that we were watching a thing that was made for the people in the room and we were sort of at this odd distance except when they did these kind of janky close-ups it's so interesting because i feel like the people in the room as i was saying about will and jada but it was also like Denzel was in one of those little front pairs. And so was um, Nicole Kidman and, and Keith Urban. And I felt like they became the unofficial greeters of all people who took the stage because every <laughs> single person who was on the stage would like reach down and give them a, a handshake or a high five. And I was like, God, they must be tired because they have to say hello to every single person. Like all the dancers who were exiting the stage would want to shake their hands. And I was like, they, they're, it's it's like too accessible almost. So it <laughs> it was a really odd design in general. I I don't I don't know if anyone in the room felt it was it was made with them in mind either. I was happy with the cafe table setup thing though. Like I liked that. You know, I I was thinking about last year when Daniel Kaluuya and Glenn Close were sitting together at that table and seemed to be having like a great time. Like you, it's got the potential for for pairings there that are interesting to watch. But kind of looking back at the broadcast, I don't think. That's really how it panned out. I also felt like I noticed the seat fillers a lot more, um, but maybe I was just primed to see it. I noticed fewer cuts to the audience, you know, for the reaction shots that I will rely on heavily in 20 years for giving purposes. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I think I, I, I would guess that the cabaret seating was for COVID reasons, kind of, but it also, it just, it, it also, I think, created even more of a hierarchical difference in terms of the audience than having, you know, Jack and Meryl and everybody in the front row in years past. Because at least in those years, like everyone is sitting in the same semi-uncomfortable auditorium chairs, you know. Yeah. But this was like, no, no, we have, um, you know, all of you hoi polloi in the back and then we have the sort of Friars Club up here, you know, and people are tromping through their living room on their way to this, the stage. It it was an odd mix. It was like, if you're going to do the cabaret thing like they did last year, like the space needs to be a lot more intimate rather than this just strange kind of open room plopped down at the front of a traditional theater. I did think they were off to a good start with the monologues, with the, you know, the three hosts coming out together and then Amy Schumer. Like those, I think, Rebecca, you were telling me that they got a lot of good reaction mm-hmm. in the room. Like I was laughing, watching it myself. Like that felt like a really strong start, like a kind of old school start. And, you know, how much to have the hosts present, I think, is a, is a question for debate. But that felt like a really good use of them. Yeah, the Amy Amy's solo monologue especially I thought played really well. And I was like, oh, this is going great. Like this will feel... You know, it. I think it, it reminds you of those hosts from before who would, would do those very Hollywood monologues that kind of poke fun at themselves but aren't super, super mean. And um, I thought it went really well, for sure. I think that was a highlight. Yeah. yeah and then, then later they go and do, like, a weird knock at the last duel in the middle of the audience. And it's mm-hmm. like, hang on a second. The, the, the thread has slipped somehow. Yeah, the, I think I, the, I saw a lot of people on Twitter, not that, you know, they're representative of the broader audience, but like who were sort of with Schumer and then really not with her. And a lot of people who didn't seem to understand that her bit with Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst was planned. Um, <laughs> I had to have been of because course, he like yeah. had lines and she put the mic in his face. You know, I don't think that like she would just, you know, treat Kirsten Dunst disrespectfully for the hell of it. But I think that the, the opening Schumer monologue was fun and felt more like old school, you know, how, how that works. But then we also had the three of them before that. And then when Schumer came out to do her solo bit, she was like, I'm back. I'm back on stage. And it was like she was kind of acknowledging that this structure was a little strange. That said, I thought that Hall and Sykes both had great moments themselves. And, you know, Re- Regina Hall is great on stage in a room like it made me really want to see her in a play. Um, and then I thought the mm. pre-taped bit with Sykes at the Academy Museum, which, yes, was promo, but that's fine. Um, Katie, you can attest, I guess you just recently went to the Academy mm. Museum. is worth the promo. Um, that but room I thought full of Oscars does look like Meryl Streep's house. It's great. Yeah, I've been yeah. there. I thought that was clever and it felt like familiar and it was well produced. And um, it was a kind of a shame to go from those moments back into the the awkward stutter of everything else, including Rebecca, you mentioned that there weren't presenters giving out the, or announcing the, the audience or the, the fan favorite mm-hmm. things. I also thought there was a shocking lack of presenters overall. The, the each best picture was introduced just as like a little sizzle reel playing kind of before or after a commercial. And it felt really, you know, and like an afterthought. And I thought they could have upped the star quote quotient by just having more people on stage announcing things. And that was foregone for some reason. I don't know why. That's interesting because I was glad that there weren't presenters presenting each of those 10 pictures. Maybe it's just because I've been to like, I don't know, five or six award shows in the past few weeks. And they, you know, most of them have done that. And I'm like, do I really need like, I love Kirsten Dunst, but do I have to see her present Power of the Dogs clips again? You know, but mm. um, so to me, I, I that didn't bother me, but it might also be the difference between being in the room versus watching at home. It may have bothered me more. I really could not believe the extent to which those fan favorite uh, and sure moment things felt like afterthoughts. It was really, 
wild. And I think, you know, in the room, nobody knew what to do. And then at home, it was like, wait, is that the thing that we've been talking about for weeks? Like, that's how Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead winds up on this broadcast. It just made, I couldn't figure out why they did it in the first place. Like, they got people to engage with it, but the presence in the broadcast was nothing. It's just 100% hoping those people who voted are watching. Like, yeah, it just, there's no, no extra effort in the show. It's just like, I hope they tune in for our ratings. Yeah, it it just felt so obviously a a ratings play. And you'd have to imagine that maybe if Spider-Man had won the thing that that Army of the Dead instead won, uh, that they would have done something more for it. But, you know, I don't know that like a zombie movie that came out on Netflix months and months and months ago uh, would have created the same kind of stage moment that um, a recent huge hit like spider-man would have yeah and so it just felt like they probably had the plan like we'll do something with this if it works out in our favor but then Mm -hmm. it didn't and they were like well we just still have to we'll just play it like before commercial it's fine i was praising the broadcast early on um aside from the fan favorite thing but it felt unhurried in a way that oscar ceremonies have not been in a long time like they were letting speeches uh take their time a little bit more the oscar the uh hosts uh, had more jokes. They had, you know, a tribute to Bond movies, which, you know, like you can, uh, I love montages. Some people don't. Um, but of course it all came at the expense of that first hour and the, uh, the eight winners who were in those other categories. Um, and then after all of that, the broadcast wound up being 20 minutes longer than, um, last year's, um, possibly because, you know, things went a little bit off the rail this air. Um, for a while I was wondering if they were going to make the case that it was worth it to do that. But I think it really, really wasn't. Um, Richard, watching the whole thing, watching those um, pre-taped acceptance speeches cut in, did you feel kind of the, the clanging dissonance there? 100%, especially because they kept the live thing on the screen. And it was like, I know this isn't live. This We mm-hmm. already know what the, who won this, you know. And then to have like Brolin and Momoa, their presenter bit was broadcast, but then other ones weren't. And so it, I don't think anyone after that was. It just felt really strange because they also they showed a decent amount of the speeches so it was like so so you kind of did half cut it but like yeah. i just was like commit to it or or don't do it at all you know like you do what the tony says which is like previously this happened but but they kind of treated it like actual categories during the live broadcast and yeah it was it was really odd and then in terms of the speeches i think that uh, yeah obviously they let some people go long but like that the Travis Barker, Sheila E. band, like, loudly started drumming Hamaguchi off stage, thinking he was done. And then he was like, whoa, 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 wait, actually, no, no, I have more to say. Like, that was really awkward. And then that didn't happen again, because they switched over to an orchestra for the third hour for some reason. That and was so weird. Everything just felt like, I don't know if this was all done on the fly. They were like, we can't have that loud drum, like, playing people off again. Let's switch it up. Or I, I don't know how much was planned or how much was improvised in the moment, but... Everything felt so scattershot and and kind of messy, I guess. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
you know, I was still on the carpet for the golden hour pre-live show. I don't know what we're calling this anymore. Um, but for those who were sitting in the room through it, which to me at least felt like most of the big stars did make it in um, for that. Like I remember um, Riz Ahmed was like running, rushing down the carpet right at like 3.55. And, and I heard him say like, we have to get in there. They're starting. They're starting. He won an, he won an Oscar. Won, so it was so worth kind of, it. Yeah, it was smart. And, and even Will and, and Jada, you know, were one of the last to hit the carpet, but they were running in there by four o'clock. So it felt like people did intentionally get there to be present for that. But all those people had to then watch them again during the show as, as the speeches were played into the show which of course it's important they were, but again, for the audience experience, it just like took any of the sort of momentum out of the room that had been created. So it, it was, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know who that ended up benefiting. Like it's sad for the winners. It was uncomfortable for the people in the room to go through it. And then it was also, you know, not, it wasn't great to watch from home. So I, I hope they'll rethink it for next year. The, the frustration of, um, you know, our, I was on the phone or texting with Anthony Brezican, who was in the room, um, kind of telling me about who the winners were. And that that was how I learned that Dune had won, what, five of its Oscars, just being like, OK, here we go. It's visual effects or no visual effects was on the broadcast sound. Um, it was awful. It was just such a terrible way to treat the momentousness of this occasion. And, you know, Richard, I don't know that I totally agree with you that the way that the show works now takes the momentousness out of the occasion, but that absolutely did. That was just such a, like, afterthought way to award these, you know, achievements. Well, you think about how the Fury Road crew looms so large throughout that broadcast, and because they were winning all these technical prizes, and and it really did feel by the end of that evening, like, even though Mad Max didn't win Best Picture, George Miller didn't win Director, that it had real presence there. And Dune would have felt like that, too, had most of their awards not happened during that that golden hour or whatever it was called, and I think you know I'm I'm sure if I was Villeneuve or, or uh, Warner Brothers, I would be kind of bummed about that. Or if I was the people who won, you know, I just think that like the, the the broadcast as it was made it seem like there were about three movies in this conversation instead of you know fifty something. Well, and it was interesting watching Power of the Dog lose over and over again. We all predicted Dune to do really well. It did really, really well in all of those categories. And it kind of felt like by the time the Oscar broadcast began, it was like, okay, well, the Coda thing's happening. Um, and it was a momentum shift that, like you're saying with Mad Max, Richard, like we would have felt happen in the room. But it was like in this like neither real nor not real uh, zone when the show started. Yeah. Uh, the Power of the Dog thing was interesting. I mean, that was one win, right? Uh, for, yeah. for 12 nominations. I mean, a big the win. first movie since The Graduate to win only Best Director. Yeah, uh, that was that was interesting. And, and you know, I, I guess maybe the writing was on the wall for that in some ways before the broadcast. But like, yeah, you're right. It did feel like I, I just I missed the kind of the rhythms of old, which would be like really tracking over, yes, four hours, maybe how each thing is playing and, and, and maybe in, in your head shifting predictions as you go. But in this case, it was like, I just opened my eyes and I was standing in the middle of this weird futuristic living room and Dune already had five Oscars. And I was like, what? <laughs> or what? You know, it just was so disorienting <laughs> uh, that I, I, and also I was live blogging and writing my review. So it, I, maybe I wasn't paying the best attention, but um, I just had a real problem getting into the flow of it um, as much as there was even a flow at all. Rebecca, what do you make of the extent to which, uh, Power, Power of the Dog lost its momentum. I mean, we've talked about it plenty, and we talked about the Coda Surge, but watching it just lose award after award after award felt like a really shocking reversal. Yeah, I mean, 
we all knew that Jane had director locked, I think. But when I remember when we were doing predictions, I felt like Dune was just going to pull so many of those um, below the line categories that I wasn't that surprised by Sunday. But, you know, I feel like Netflix did run a great campaign for that film. And, you know, when we first saw it, I didn't know many months ago. I didn't know if it was going to be able to sort of make that run because of, you know, the type of film it is. And, and, and so I think they did everything they could. And it's just, I don't know, there's just a lot of competition and a lot of momentum for other films. So it was a really, um, it was really terrible night for Netflix. They only won that award for Jane Campion. Um, And we talked about how they've been dominant in the shorts category so many times. Um, Apple has now beaten them to the Best Picture Oscar, which is crazy. (laughs) Like, they only started releasing films two years ago. Um, I don't know what they learned from this or what they change modes from this, but the, you know, Netflix being Charlie Brown with the football, it just keeps happening. Like, that is the narrative at this point. It's it's interesting that they now, that Netflix now has two Best Director Oscars, um, by my count, right? It's Koran and, and Campion. Because there you could, if you want to get real tinfoil or pad about it or whatever, like you could really see the Academy being like, we respect that Jane Campion and Alfonso Cuaron got to make their grand visions uh, with the largesse of this streaming service, but we're not really going to give it much else. You know, I mean, Roma won a lot, but like it, it just th- there's something like they're honoring the director who got their project made in the way that they, you know, how they could with the, the amount of money that they needed or wanted. Um, but they're certainly, in terms of Best Picture, less willing thus far to give that award to the producers, to Netflix, for them to put in a case in their offices. You know, um, there's a distinction there. Um, and I wonder if that is part of the thinking in the voting, or maybe it's just kind of more arbitrary than that. I mean, so much of the Oscar ecosystem right now is propped up by companies that make a ton, a ton of money off of other things, uh, you know, that are not using um, Oscar uh, tended movies as the thing that makes their companies function. You know, you got Apple and Amazon and Netflix. And the thing that I always just worry about is that they're going to be like, well, fuck it. Like, we're not going to keep trying to do this and spend, you know, throw money at the Jane Campions of the world. Um, I don't know if that would happen now. You know, they, it would. It takes a few years for that kind of ship to turn around. But it, it makes me nervous, um, even though maybe I shouldn't worry so much about the whims of like a single executive who might just give up on the quest. There's also maybe a, an important distinction to draw in terms of, you know, Apple beating Netflix to best picture. Apple did that with an acquisition. You know, yeah. they didn't they didn't shepherd Coda into being. Um, that was largely a, fr- a French production, from my understanding. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Netflix, you know, with Campion and Quran and other and, you know, Marriage Story, other things like that, they are there from the beginning. And, and maybe Netflix will perhaps think a little bit more about how they treat their acquisitions, which famously has not been that good. Um, you know, they tend to buy things at festivals and then they just kind of get buried in the in the, the pile. Yeah, I mean, service. Netflix acquires passing at, at the same Sundance where Apple gets Coda and you see those two different yeah. trajectories. So I don't know. So then uh, on, the, on the other side of that token, like it would be interesting to see what Apple does when they do shepherd something from the ground up like they're doing with Scorsese, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, you know, for anyone who doesn't know that Killers of the Flower Moon is coming next year, like that is the 800. That's, that's kind of the Netflix style. Here comes this large prestige auteur picture um, that's coming for this next year. I can't. I mean, there's probably another one. We'll, we'll do that episode in a couple weeks, which I read, so <laughs> tune in. Um, and Jesse Plemons is in it because that guy can't not be in a Best Picture nominee in a given year. I'm so curious to see what happens with Sundance the next time it comes around because this was the first 
Sundance film to win Best Picture, I think. I think that's right. Yeah, and I believe so. And, and and you remember when Apple bought this for like $25 million, everyone was like, that's kind of insane. And and here they are walking away with their first um, Oscar. So, Although they almost certainly have not made their money back. No, they definitely haven't. But I think that, you know, that it's win is it. invaluable. So yeah. um, I am curious if this sort of, I mean, Coda broke a lot of the sort of traditional rules of of winning Best Picture. And I do wonder if if we'll see, you know, um, more aggressive buying at the next Sundance because they've proved it can be done. Yeah, it's almost hard to think about, like, what Coda's Best Picture win means because, again, that part of the evening felt so overshadowed. Yeah. But, you know, I we already had a listener kind of writing in, like, is it going to feel like Crash and Green Book? Is this kind of, like, heart-string-tugging movie that wins without winning director? Um I hope Coda's reputation is better than that. I think it's a better movie than that. Um, I don't know. Is it just going to fall into the like into the mist of time, and in five years, it'd be like, oh yeah, Coda. Like, what's its reputation going to be? I really hate that people pair this movie with Green Book. It just it just not, does not make sense to me. Those are two very different journeys, in in my opinion, for the way of of inclusive filmmaking, especially. So, I sort of hated the Coda backlash, and I feel like. This movie starred deaf actors and introduced a lot of Hollywood to a culture they may not have known a lot about and has powerful performances. And, you know, I I hope it doesn't have that sort of reputation in a few years. I mean, I understand it's a smaller film, but it's still a special one, in my opinion. I mean, I think it'll be uh, remembered as helping to open a door in a way. You know, Marley Matlin won for... uh, Children of a Lesser God, you know, many years ago, um, that did not lead to uh, any sort of boom in, in including the deaf community in in Hollywood. But I think this will this this is, has a different impact. The Best Picture thing is, you know, and it has an acting trophy, it has a screenplay trophy. Like, uh, yeah, I, I think it'll have that significant impact. Whether the move, the text of the movie itself will endure, maybe not as much. But like. Can we really say that about a lot of Best Picture winners, honestly? You know, yeah. like we, we mentioned the 2002 recap. Like, I know you, the three of us are talking about A Beautiful Mind all the time. But like, is anyone else? <laughs> um, I, I Not to compare those two movies. But like, uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that Coda will is not going to be a sort of blemish at all on the Academy's record in the way some people are suggesting it will. At, you know, I think that's that's silly. Plenty of uplifting, you know, sort of issue movies have have won Best Picture before, and 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 that's fine. You know, this is as I say a million times, this is all made up. There is no rule for what should get Best Picture. You know, it is not an objective thing. So yeah, I just do feel you know it's sad that not only was the moment diminished because of what had happened a few, you know, 30 minutes prior, but also because, again, the stage, the set just didn't really rise to meet literally <laughs> the the majesty of the occasion. Someone, well, as I was looking at Twitter after Slapgate last night, someone tweeted like something about how the two best picture front runners, you know, were both directed by women. And there, I feel like there's just a lot of moments I haven't been able to sort of take in and appreciate just because the only thing anyone's been talking about for the last, I don't know, however many hours it's been since the Oscars has been yeah. the slap. But uh, yeah, I do think there are things we'll look back on and and say that was that was a pretty significant moment. Ariana, Ariana DeBose, you know, winning mm-hmm. uh, Supporting Actress and... Um, I don't know exactly about Linda Hunt's level of outness when she won for Year of Living Dangerously, 
But I believe, if if we don't count Linda Hunt, that Ariana DeBose is the first out queer actor to win an Oscar, who's out at the time that she wins it, or mm-hmm. they win it, which is feels significant in a way. And she seems like the, I think she's the first acting winner to thank her, you know, same-sex partner in, his, in an Oscar speech, at the very least. Yeah, at the very least, there's that, um, which, you know, that is a milestone. and it And it's not just a milestone in terms of you know, that sort of social significance, but it's for a great performance. And, you know, in a movie that a lot of people like, and I actually read some really interesting criticisms against West Side Story in in the lead up to the Oscars. So I've sort of, you know, thinking about that um, as I talk about the movie, but her performance, I think, is unimpeachable. And and so that was a significant moment. Yes, that I hope that will endure uh, longer than this right now, this chatter of, of gossip about something that was at the show, but wasn't necessarily what the show is about. Should we talk about Jessica Chastain winning after all, after all of our speculation about this? <laughs> yeah. um, and David Canfield, is, he'll be back with us soon. He had a really wonderfully well-thought-out theory on Penelope Cruz that I think really took on a life of its own. Uh, I kept hearing about, seeing people tweeting in, Rebecca, you're going to events where everyone's like, Penelope Cruz, she's going to mm-hmm. surge and get it. Um, but it was uh, Jessica Chastain for a movie that I, I don't know if it's going to be the most beloved of her career, um, as has been the track record for a lot of Best Actress wins, I think, lately. But... Um, Good for her. I felt I felt happy for her watching it happen. Yeah, yeah. I saw her um, as I was spending 40 minutes trying to get out of the parking garage after the Oscars. Um, I saw her on, on the back of a golf cart going through the parking lot with her Oscar. And she just looked so genuinely happy. And I, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was a nice moment. And it felt special for her, even as you're saying. It, it maybe isn't just an award for this film for her. Yeah, it, it, you know, we, we talked about it when we were kind of doing the prediction stuff. But, you know, the fact that she's had these rights for uh, a decade, and this is such a labor of love, and th- that that has a significance, especially as a lot of people in the industry, especially uh, women, uh, a- you know, actors are are turning to producing their own stuff to basically create material for themselves, you know. Um, and this win is a huge testament to that effort. And um so it feels significant in that way. And then she gave a nice speech where she, you know, thanked people specifically involved in the movie and then evoked, you know, a bigger things that, at least in her mind, like the that Eyes of Tammy Faye is in thematic dialogue with. And yeah, it was that was like a classic, you know, sort of Oscars acceptance speech moment um, that uh, I did feel maybe a little bit she was, and I think, you know, to her credit in some ways, like trying to retrain the gaze of the evening <laughs> to mm-hmm. to the films and, and to the, the sort of uplift of the occasion, um, which, you know, that's a consummate uh, show person that she, you know, had the the sort of wherewithal to, to try to do that uh, that late in the in the game. Meanwhile, didn't it feel like Jane Campion was just trying to get out of her speech with no no damage whatsoever? Like she came prepared with a piece of paper. She didn't make jokes. She got in there and out of there, um, and which is fine after you know the mess she got herself in last time. But um, I don't know. It felt like a little bit less of a moment than maybe I wanted it to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we talked about that. Like we've always sort of enjoyed her speeches because she is a little uh, out there with them, but they do feel genuine. And, and the minute I saw that paper in her hand, I was like, oh, she's going to, she's going to stay on script for this one. But it's, yeah, yeah, it's still, a, and it was a special moment to see her win, I think. Oh, Rebecca, should we talk about the party? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you were at the Governor's Awards as well. So maybe you can, if there are any dispatches from that, um, but the Vanity Fair Oscar party um, was really big and back in full swing this year. Um, so, I mean, you were you said you were stuck in a parking lot for 40 minutes, Rebecca, but yeah. um, then how, how was your first VF party experience from there? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, I didn't get there till 11 something, but 
you know, I've heard about that party for years and, and obviously I couldn't go when I was with a different outlet. And it, it really is just like everywhere you turn, there's a star or someone holding an Oscar. And, and it feels like people have sort of let down their guard because there's not like a ton of press inside and they're just like enjoying the moment late into the night and you see a lot of really random but cool interactions and yeah it lived up to the hype for me yeah um I you know we talked about the Will Smith dance party which I think was a pretty like standout moment but I really had forgotten if you if you're there and kind of the thick of when people are there at the party you're looking everywhere you look you're just going to be like it doesn't take you long to clock who you're looking at. You know, seeing famous people in person can sometimes feel like, oh, wait a second, who am I looking at? But it is just wall to wall notable faces. Um, Richard, have you have you looked at anything from the party from our um, from our reporting that intrigued you? You know, it's funny, Katie. Uh, you and I were texting a couple days ago, and then I was also texting with our colleague Julie Miller. And I was kind of proud of myself because I was like, I'm glad they're going to the party. I think it's going to be really fun. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sad. I'm not there, you know. And then last night and this morning, looking at photos, I started to get really envious. <laughs> You're and, like, these assholes. <laughs> God damn it. Um, but no, it looks like it was a great turnout. I, I thought there was some great, um, in Julie's kind of write-up of the event, like some great behind-the-scenes things, you know, people talking about the Will Smith thing, to talking about other things. Like, I, I think that that party is so fun because, you know, in my situation, I'm just a fly on the wall. I'm not really interacting with people. I'm just sort of observing and just taking it all in. And there's so much to do in that regard, you know. Um, and uh, but not in a not in a voyeuristic way. It's more just like people are all there and happy to be there. And and, and um, even no matter what had happened at the show previous, like the party can feel like its own occasion, which I think is a testament to all the very hard work that many many people do uh, in in the lead up to it every year. Yeah, Julie's party report, basically her job is to walk around the party and just see which unexpected people are talking to each other. Um, and so she catches things I never do, like Rita Ora talking to Al Pacino <laughs> or Sienna Miller walking up to Isla Fisher and saying, you dirty bitch, which I, yeah. <laughs> which I Cigarette in hand, seen. I believe. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Um, I think my best one was uh, Catherine O'Hara talking to Bill Murray and she was just like smiling up at him just like with this glorious, lovely look on her face. Um, and I wish I could have like hovered around longer to hear what they were talking about. Also, I walked in behind Sofia Coppola escorting Francis Ford Coppola into the party, which is not an unexpected pairing, but just felt like a real iconic one. I feel like there are two distinct kinds of uh, post-ish Omicron social release. One is where you sort of blurt out into the world and act a little wild. Um, and the other is you're just so, that much more excited to be around people that you haven't seen or to be meeting new people or to to like give a hug to a, a colleague who you know you haven't had an in-person interaction with in a long time and and from everything I've gleaned from the extensive reporting done about our party the mood was predominantly the latter you know it was just like a, a really celebratory thing about the what had just happened but also about like hey here we all are and um it's you know if nothing else it's great that we were able to provide that occasion for so many people yeah, Rebecca, you've talked to so many people over the past few weeks of the awards circuit, and you caught up with some of them. And did, do they seem noticeably more relieved <laughs> to have it all be over with and be at our party? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. And it's funny because even at, earlier in the day at the carpet, it it felt like people were so excited that this was actually happening in a sort of almost normal way post-COVID surge, because a couple months ago, I don't think any of us were sure that the Oscars or our party was going to happen in the way it ended up happening. And a lot of people were like, this feels almost normal. And and I think had really been craving that experience. But yes, I think by the time our party hit, you know, I talked to a couple directors and a couple other nominees and 
and they just seemed so happy. And, and I kept asking people if they were going on vacations because that's what I'm planning on doing. And, and like, Denis was like, no, I've got to go shoot Dune too. And like, like people are just going back to work, but um, yeah. And I think ready to at this point after this long season. But you're going on vacation to Arrakis, right? So like, <laughs> you're kind of going to have the same trip. Yes. Just hanging out with sandworms is my, you know, priority. Yeah. I was telling you guys before we started recording that I ended the night talking to um, members of the, the sound and the visual effects teams from Dune who were just like so lovely. I know we've said this before that the a lot of the technical category winners are the most fun people to talk to at the party because and literally they said to me like, yeah, we're just we're just people. You can hold our Oscars. And I'm like, yeah, but like they are Oscars. Like don't let some rando like me take hold them. But they did. And they were very nice about it. Um, and they were like, yeah, we're going to go work together and do too. We had a great time. Like what what better motivation to go work on a sequel than to come back with a boatload of Oscars? <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> let's win some <laughs> more in a couple years. Well last time. Yeah. I thought the In Memoriam uh, was actually kind of a great innovation of, you know, of a maybe horror Oscar tradition. You know, they've done it in different ways. Sometimes it's just a full, just a plaza meter things oftentimes there's a live performer queen latifah singing i'll remember you is a highlight eddie vetter singing the tom petty song uh, a room at the top um and you know yes the way that it was filmed for the, the television broadcast maybe was a little distracting because the names were on a screen behind this gospel choir and so maybe all attention wasn't paid to those people and then there were the celebrities coming out offering little eulogies for certain people but I thought somewhere in that jumble, there was something really successful. And what I really liked most about it was this gospel choir that um, there was a mournful quality to some of the segment, but also a joyfulness and a celebration of these lives, rather than this kind of um, more somber thing of years past. And I, I thought that was a fun approach to a necessity of every Oscar broadcast. And it kept, you know, some energy up um, in a way that I thought was still reverent and uh yeah respectful even though i think disrespectful was the the kind of word i saw most associated online with that whole bit i always regret that i can't focus more on what's happening because i'm like especially last night you know i was trying to you know marshal reactions to the will smith moment um and when i went to the academy museum last week with our colleague hillary Busis, they were showing clips from um, oscar speeches in one room and they showed um I think Ruth Carter's speech and then two like, Chloe Jaws from last year. And I was like, I don't remember these at all because I was just typing through them. Like, I, I don't get to focus. It takes years for it to kind of settle in, um, which I guess is what happens with every Oscar ceremony. Again, Richard, when you do the 20 years later recap, I feel like when the Oscars are happening, we're kind of figuring out what it means. And only in hindsight do the clear narratives really emerge. We have to wait. We have to wait a while to figure out what this all means. Yeah, it, it was funny last night. So I, I filed my very negative review of the show, kind of a despondent review of the show, and then was still a little rattled. And so was puttering around the house. And then what, what did I find myself doing 30 minutes later? watching the some of the acceptance speeches on YouTube again, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to like better absorb them. Um, and they played a little bit better in that in that uh, context, frankly. I feel like I almost always do that the next day because all of us, I think, and a lot of people who watch the show, your your mind is in a million different places. So it's nice to sit with them for a little bit. The other day, um, I think Chris Tapley, he put out uh, a Twitter thread uh, with video of um, – a video compilation of every best picture presentation, like the, the presenter opening the envelope and reading the name. And so, you know, that toward the very end, you're going to get to Jane Fonda saying parasite. And yeah. I watched it the other day and like kind of burst into tears. <laughs> Cause it was, just, it's just such a cool moment that Fonda nails. And I thought, you know, last night, 
I liked Kevin Costner's dramatic pause before reading Campion's name. I thought, and then she kind of remarked on that. So there, there were some theatrics that um, I think I will appreciate uh, in the time to come as these Oscars settle a bit in my memory. Oh, we didn't even talk about Liza Minnelli and Lady Gaga. What a, oh, yeah. what a lovely pair. I mean, Lady Gaga, like Lady Gaga, famously collaborates with Tony Bennett, and she has this like bridge to an older generation quality that like anybody would have seen coming ten years ago. But she was so good, and I was so happy to see Liza Minnelli there. I'm not sure how her health is, but I was delighted to see her. And okay, Coda was so good too. Like I mean, because it was just, <laughs> just sort of like it. it wasn't like disrespectful. It was just like a sort of like all right, here we go. Like I just I thought that was. A really nice, you know, warming uh, way to close the show out, and uh, and and give it that sense of old school kind of theatricality and and uh, flamboyance, I suppose. Liza's seen so much in her life; she's not going to get worked up about your best picture win. This is this is nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> also, Richard, wasn't it the, the 2002 Oscars where they were just joking about her wedding like nonstop? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's you know she's she's been long been part of the Oscar narrative. Well, I think that is for now a wrap on the uh, 94th Academy Awards. I'm sure we'll be wind up talking about it later. But um, first, as a reminder, we're moving to our two episodes a week format this week. So um, come back on Thursday, our usual day, to hear an interview. And then starting next week, we'll be back on a more routine schedule of Tuesday interviews and Thursday shows. And coming up next will be our 2023 Oscar predictions. I always feel like I'm ready for those at this point, and then I get very overwhelmed. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to land on this. Um, but it's coming. Um, Richard and Becky, you guys ready for a break? And then we'll look toward the future. Does that feel good? I'm ready now, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> to be honest. Okay. At this point, I'm just so tired of talking about these movies that I'm more than eager to uh, to start with some new ones next week. Yeah, bring it I on. Can tell you, I, I can tell you something that doesn't reflect well on me. I was walking through our party uh, later in the night with uh, our colleague Hillary Busis, and I saw uh, Jesse Plummet's kind of trailing behind Benedict Cumberbatch. And I was like, have they been in something together before? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and then you introduced to... Kirsten to Jesse, and you were like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, hit it off. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it was time to go to bed at that moment. Um, okay, well, go to VanityFair.com to read so much coverage. Well, um, you know, there's everything we talked about, the portraits from the party, the um, Seliger studio, Richard's recap, Rebecca's reports from the uh, from the show. We'll have a what you didn't see on TV roundup with even more things that um, that everybody saw in person. And thank you for being with us on this journey and for all the feedback you've given us. This um, this point of the year always feels like we're the ones giving acceptance speeches. Um, and we're grateful to all of you for listening. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Goldman and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard Rylaws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And uh, sign up to text with us at Subtext, as some of you did after last night's Oscars. Go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-4203. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best post-Oscar hangover cure goes to Rebecca Ford. Just hanging out with sandworms. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> 
On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.